0: This week we have seen an escalation in the prophetic statement there should be wars and rumors of wars. Gog and Magog are once again in the news. Russia is on the march. Could this prophecy be very far away that says therefore thou son of man prophesy against Gog and say thus saith the Lord God behold I am against thee O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and leave thee but the sixth part of thee, and will cause thee to come up from the north parts, and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel, and I will smite thy bow with thy left with thy left hand, and I will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand, and I will send a fire on Magog, and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 1 through 3 and verse 6. On March sixth, 1936, Adolf Hitler took the Rhineland to start his conquest. Vladimir Putin is following in those steps by invading Ukraine. When you read the history books, you discover the past. And when you read your Bible, you discover the future. That's what Bible prophecy is. It's future history, pre-written in past tense, just to blow the mind of unbelievers. So if you're a student of history and a student of the Word of God, you are doubly prepared to know what's going on and what is playing out in the headlines with Russia and Ukraine. We're seeing the shaping of the four world powers, the kingdom of the north, Russia and her allies, the kingdom of the east, China and her allies, the kingdom of the south, the Pan-Arabic bloc, and the king of the west, the revived Roman Empire. Of course, the church has to be gone before the leader of the west and the revived Roman Empire is revealed. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 6 says now we beseech you brethren by the coming of our lord jesus christ and by gathering together unto him that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us that the day of christ is at hand let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things? And now ye know what beholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. So watch the news and look up. Our redemption is drawing near. In Luke chapter 19, we have these words. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable. Because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God should immediately appear, he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants, and delivered them ten pounds, and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him, and they sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded those servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much each man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said unto him likewise, Be thou also then over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is your pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin, for I feared thee, because thou art an oster man. Thou takest up where thou laidest not down, and thou reapest where thou didst not sow. He saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an oster man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? He said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. They said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one that hath shall be given, and from him that hath not Even that that he hath shall be taken away. But these mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Immediately following the rapture of the church, church church-age believers are led to the judgment seat of Christ, where we will be giving an accounting of our stewardship with regards to our time, our possessions, and our abilities. Romans chapter 14, verse 10, But when, why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God in second corinthians chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ that every one may receive the things in his but bo- done in his body according to that which he hath done whether it be good or worthless how do we reconcile the grace of god And the concept of rewards, that's a question I struggled with in my early years as a believer. The idea of rewards seemed to be in direct conflict with the doctrine of the grace of God. And yet the Lord contributed to this concept of rewards in his parables and teachings concerning stewardship and stewards. Certainly this is seen in the parable of the par- parable of the pounds and the parable of the talents, and although the parables were spoken by Jesus during the age of Israel, the principle they convey is applicable throughout the church age, to we as believers in this period of time, as was evidenced in Jesus' explanation as to why he taught in parables. In Matthew 13, beginning at verse 10, the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away that which he hath. Therefore, Speak I unto them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should... See with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven refer to the secrets known only to those that are in the organization. So although It was in the age of Israel that these parables were given. The principles apply to those in the church age. Therefore, the principles related to the parables regarding stewards is applicable to the judgment seat of Christ. Rewards are presented on the basis of stewardship, as seen in the parables of the talents and of the pounds. There are a number of usages of the term judgment seat. The term is a translation of the Greek word bima. It's used in a judicial environment, in a military role, and in an athletic environment. In the Gospels and in the book of Acts, bima is used with reference to a raised platform where a Roman magistrate or ruler sat to make decisions, to pass judgments and sentences. We find the references to the judgment seat in the Pauline epistles, such as Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.9. However, Paul's many allusions uh, to the Greek athletic contest is more in keeping with the original use of the term the bema seat. Among the Greeks, its focus is on reward, not condemnation this word was taken from the ismanian games where the contestants would compete for a prize under the watchful eye of a judge who would make sure that every rule of the event was conformed to the victor of a given event who participated then according to the rules was led by the judge to the platform called the bema there a laurel wreath was placed on his head as a symbol of victory, you can document that in Second Timothy two five, and First Corinthians nine twenty four, and twenty five. In these passages, Paul was picturing the believer as a competitor in a spiritual contest. In the same way, the victorious Grecian athletes appeared before the bema to receive his perishable reward. So we as Christians will appear before Christ's Bema to receive His imperishable rewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 25. The judge at the Bema bestowed awards to the victors. There are no punishments or penalty for the loser. The focus is a positive one with recognition of the winner. The Bema seat is a reward seat and portrays a time of rewards or loss of rewards following our examination. But it's not a time of punishment where believers are judged for their sins. Such would be inconsistent with the finished work of Christ on the cross because he totally paid the penalty for our sins past, present, and future. To refer refer to the event as the judgment seat, can be a little misleading because of the negative identification that we attach to the word judgment. This is to be understood as it was in the day in which Paul wrote it. It is an awards ceremony. There will be loss in that the works that we have done in the flesh earn no reward, as is illustrated in the removal of the one talent from the steward that buried his portion in the earth instead of investing it. That portion was taken from him and given to another steward who was faithful and productive. As far as our sins are concerned, we must remember that the Bible teaches that the believer in Christ is under grace and will never face judgment. John 3.18, John 5.24, John 6.37, Romans 5.1, Romans 8.1, 1 1 Corinthians 11.32, all document that. In his position in Christ, the penalty for all sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for by Christ as the perfect Lamb of God, and the believer is not only removed from condemnation, but being in Christ, he is accepted in the sinless perfection of Christ. 1 Corinthians one thirty, Ephesians 1.6, Colossians 2.10, Hebrews 10.14. He is loved of God as Christ is loved, according to John 17.23. It cannot be too strongly emphasized that this judgment has nothing to do with the issue of sin but it is a time for the recognition and the presentation of rewards. Every year when I was in high school, we had an awards assembly. The awards assembly was a time of recognition and presentation of trophies and awards to students for achievement in academics and in athletics for that year. There was nothing negative about it, but it was a time of celebration. Each time an award was presented, the other students would cheer and applaud in celebration. Were there some disappointments? Certainly. There were those who had competed, but were not as successful as another student. But even then, it was tempered, and at the judgment seat will be further tempered, because in the athletic events, individuals compete against one another where natural ability plays a role but in the christian walk, we do not compete with each other we're evaluated on the basis of the skill and the achievement given specifically to us a further tempering of course of disappointment is the fact that as a result of our resurrection body we will no longer have an old sin nature the natural disposition to sin that we inherited from adam in our physical birth, will be gone. Now some deny that there will be any sorrow or disappointment at the judgment seat, and they cite Revelation 21, verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. However, that passage refers to the new heaven and the new earth it appears that there will be some sorrow or disappointment through the millennial reign of christ may recall the cry of those that are seen under the altar in heaven that are martyred during the tribulation in revelation chapter 6 verse 9 and when he had opened the fifth seal john said i saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of god and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Finally, it must be noted that rewards would have no value if there were not some distinctions with regard to the evaluation of our stewardship. The bema seat will take place immediately following the rapture of the church, after the church is caught up to be with the Lord in the air, as is described in First Thessalonians 4, 13-18. There is biblical evidence of this timing found in Luke chapter fourteen verses twelve through fourteen that rewards are associated with the resurrection and the rapture is when the church is resurrected. In Revelation nineteen eight, when the Lord returns with his bride uh, to the uh, at the end of the tribulation, she is already seen as having been rewarded, her reward is described as fine linen, the righteous act of the saints, undoubtedly the result of reward. in second Timothy four eight as well as first corinthians four five rewards are associated with that day, and when the Lord's coming again. For the church, this means the event described in 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18, the rapture of the church. So the order of events will be as follows. The rapture, which includes our glorification with the transformation of our bodies to be like Christ, the translation into heaven with the Lord, an examination before the Bema, and compensation or rewards with our commissions for the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom based on our stewardship parables that Jesus taught. Well, where does this take place? The judgment seat will take place somewhere in the heavenlies, in the presence of the Lord. As is evidenced from Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17, Revelation 4 2, and Revelation 19 8. Well, who are the participants? All the passages deal with dealing with the bima or the rewards are addressed to believers or are related to the believers of the church age. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3, Second uh, Corinthians 5, 1 John 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 Timothy 6, Titus 2, all of these emphasize uh, the participants at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ, or the born-again children of God, the church-age believer. The resurrection program and the reward of Old Testament saints occurs after the tribulation after church age saints are already seen in heaven and rewarded, and then return with the Lord to the earth for God to bring judgment upon the earth, is documented in Revelation 19.8 with Daniel 12, 1 and 2, and the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. All believers, regardless of their spiritual state, will be raptured and will stand before the Bema to give an account of their lives and will either receive reward or lose reward. Some believe in a partial rapture theory which says that only those that are in fellowship with God at the rapture will be raptured as a form of punishment for their sin. Well, as we've already mentioned, that's not only contrary to the finished work of christ who once and for all paid our penalty the sin debt was cancelled but is contrary to the teaching of what we find in 1st thessalonians chapter 5 verses 9 through 11 which says this for god is not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our lord jesus christ who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also you do. The context for this text shows that Paul has in mind the return of Christ for the church, the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. The rapture is the means of our deliverance from the wrath that he discusses in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Further, the words awake or sleep in verse 10 refer to a spiritual or a moral condition. In other words, not whether one is alive or dead when Christ returns. And this is clear from both the context of chapter 5, verses 4 and 8, and by the fact that he changed the words he used for sleep. Now, he used the Greek word kathirio in chapter 5, verse 10, rather than koimao, which was used in reference to physical sleep and even death. It was also commonly used of spiritual apathy a carnal indifference to spiritual manners. And so this clarifies the context in chapter 5. The point then is this. Because of the perfect and finished nature of Christ's death, notice he died for us in verse 10, whether we are spiritually alert or not, we will live together with him through the rapture to to be able then to face the examination At the Bema seat. Who is the judge at the Bema seat? Well, this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is even now monitoring our lives and will bring to light the true nature of our walk and our works when we stand before him. At the judgment seat, according to Revelation 1 and 2 and 1 Corinthians 4, Five and following. Second Corinthians five, 10, 1 John two, twenty eight. Rome, in Romans chapter fourteen, verse ten, the apostle called this examining time the bema of God, while in Second Corinthians five, ten, he called it the bema of Christ. The point is, Jesus, who is God, is going to be our examiner, and we will be rewarded by him. What's the purpose of the Bhima see? Well the purpose and the basis is the most critical issue of all and brings us face to face with the practical aspects of the Bhima. Some crucial questions are, why are we brought before the Bhima? Is it only for reward or is there loss? Will any punishment been meted out? Will there be any sorrow? What's the basis on which the Bema is conducted? Is it sin, good works, or stewardship evaluation, or just what? Well, there are a lot of confusion and disagreement among theologians concerning the exact nature of the Bema seat. The use of the term judgment seat in most translations, ignorance of the historical and cultural background concerning the Bema, and faulty theology concerning the finished work of Christ have all contributed to several common misconceptions which in one way or another uh, view God as demanding some kind of retribution to believers uh, for their sin or, as some suggest, for at least for unconfessed sin. Well, some Bible students believe that the judgment seat is a place of remorse and sorrow, and they view it as the place where the sins of all believers are displayed in front of all believers of the church age. I grew up in an environment as a a child uh, in my early uh, childhood in church, to be told that every thought, every action was going to be portrayed on a big screen at the judgment seat of Christ and everyone would know not only what I'd done, but what I thought and everything that came out of my mouth. Well, in addition to those who believe that, we have a group on the other side that views the judgment seat as simply an awards ceremony. Awards are handed out to every Christian, and that results that every Christian will be gratified uh, for the reward uh, which he receives, and there will be no shame experienced. Still other students hold a mediating position. They retain the seriousness of the judgment seat, but emphasize the commendation aspect of the judgment seat. They emphasize the importance and necessity of faithful stewardship in living day by day, but they reject any thought of punishment at the bema. They emphasize the fact that there is an accounting that each believer must give, an accounting of himself before Christ, and everything that was done through the energy of the flesh with regard uh, uh, to uh, being out of fellowship with God will be determined to be worthless for reward, while all that was done under the control of the Holy Spirit will be rewarded. Those who hold this view believe that the Christian will stand glorified before Christ without his old nature. He will likewise be without guilt because he has been declared righteous. There will be no need for punishment, for Christ has redeemed, redeemed us, and removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. God does not punish the believer, but he does discipline the believer in his lifetime. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The word scourgeth is from the Greek word mastigoi. It refers to the Jewish scourging. They used a whip with three leather thongs and applied 13 stripes across the bare breast and then 13 stripes across each shoulder for a total of 39 stripes. The term 39 stripes, or 40 stripes save one, had significance under the Mosaic Law. A man then could be beaten, but not more than 40 stripes. That was considered the maximum a man could survive according to Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3. Mastigoi, translated "scourgeth" means literally to skin alive with the whip. Now I can hear you, that sounds an awful lot like punishment, but it's not punishment. To punish means to impose a penalty of pain, loss, or suffering on an individual for some action. The distinction between punishment and suffering, uh, the discipline, is not in the action of affliction, but in the motive. There may not be any difference between punishment and discipline in the affliction of pain, loss, or suffering to that individual, but there is a difference in the purpose. Let me restate the difference. The purpose of punishment is to penalize the person for wrong. The purpose of discipline is to modify the person's behavior. Discipline is only relative to the time that we are here on the earth. Its purpose is to modify our behavior. It has nothing to do with anything after the rapture. So the Judgment Seat, or Bema, is an award ceremony based on our stewardship of time, possessions, and ability. It will be evaluated on how we have conformed to God's design or plan for our life. Although sin is not the issue at the Judgment Seat of Christ, we do need to understand the effect that sin has in relation to stewardship. So let's take a brief look at its effect on what occurs at the judgment seat of Christ. There will be the loss of fellowship with the Lord. That is, known sin in one's life causes a loss of intimate fellowship with the Lord. And that results in a loss of the believer's joy, of his peace, and of any reward that he might otherwise earn. Divine discipline from the Lord here in time is important for us to understand. We should not think of discipline as punishment, but discipline from God is actually the gracious work of a father to train and develop his children. Sometimes it comes in the form of various kinds of testings, trials, failures, predicaments, situations which he uses to correct us, to train us. And if we've been going our own way stubbornly, then to increase our misery, the goal of that is always to bring us back to him, according to Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. If the believer remains unrepentant, this can lead then to what the Bible identifies as the sin unto death. As with Annas and Sapphira, and as with the believer in Corinth that was fornicating with his father's wife, they refused to confess their sin and get right, and as a result, they were taken prematurely. Taken, notice, not sent. They go to be with the Lord, but though they go to be with the Lord prematurely, they lose then all of their reward as we saw uh, in the parables. There is a loss of power and production when we are out of fellowship with God. When we fail to deal with our sin through the personal confession outlined in 1 John 1, 9, we are forced then to operate in the energy of the flesh. And that production is the works of the flesh. And their fruitless consequences are the result. Without the abiding life, without living by faith and being obedient to Christ, we produce nothing of value that will be rewarded at the Bema Sea. There's also the loss of opportunity. When we attempt to control our lives rather than allowing the Lord to have that control, We lose spiritual insight and we become insensitive to people and to the opportunities of ministry. We lack vision. Carnal believers have no vision other than their own personal agendas and their own selfish goals, according to John chapter 4, beginning at verse 34 and reading through. There is the loss of desire and motivation for service when we're out of fellowship with God. Carnal believers are occupied and controlled by their own self-centered desires. Galatians 5.16 Perhaps it's a good place here then to discuss the concept of selfishness and rewards, for some see an appeal to reward as being selfish and therefore being carnal. The carnality causes broken relationships and pains to those around us, to our families, to our friends, to our associates, to our co-workers, to others in the body of Christ, according to Galatians 5.15, along with Hebrews 12.15. There is the loss of physical health and vitality. Of course, all sickness, weakness, or suffering is not a product of sin, but it certainly can be and very often is according to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 John 5, Proverbs 17, Proverbs 14 as well. These are conditions that we experience here in time when we're out of fellowship with God and then there is the loss of reward as a result at the Bema seat. 1 Corinthians 13, Beginning at verse thirteen, says, "Each man will be each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is going to be revealed by fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of every man's work. If any man's work he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet." so as by fire. Some of what is revealed about rewards in the Bible is given in specific terms, but most of what is revealed is presented in a more general way. Some as in parables and in terms that are not specific. Some of the rewards are identified as the presentation of crowns. As a matter. In fact, the Bible identifies four different crowns that are to be awarded to believers. The crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of life, and the crown of joy. Now, there are two kinds of crowns mentioned in the Bible. The Bible speaks of the diadema and of the stephanos. The crowns that we receive at the judgment seat of Christ are stephanos crowns. Diadema is a symbol of a kingly or imperial dignity. It identifies our joint ruling and reigning with Christ that is bestowed upon us that right and privilege and guarantee at the moment of salvation. The Stephanos crowns are victor's crowns. They are crowns that identify specific achievement. These crowns are awarded on the basis of the four basic techniques of living the Christian life that's identified in the Bible. Those four techniques and their crowns are identified here. We have the crown of righteousness is awarded on the basis of your being controlled or filled by the Holy Spirit. The crown of glory is dependent upon your development of the structure of spiritual maturity. The crown of life is from the development of your faith rest technique. And the crown of joy is dependent upon your development of faithful stewardship. There is the promise of heavenly treasures in addition to the crowns. Now I might mention about those crowns. We are going to cast those at the feet of Jesus when we're there in heaven after they've been awarded to us, it gives us something to present to Him. And the Bible identifies our presentation of those to Him. But there's also the promise of a heavenly treasure. Matthew 6.20, 1 Peter stress the eternal value and security of the works that are done under the control of the Spirit and for which there is reward in heaven. We have also the promise of accolades and of commandments. Now this is seen in the passages where a reward is administered in the form of something like well done thou good and faithful servant because you've been faithful over a few things I'll make you ruler over many things. For the judgment seat of Christ is not only an awards banquet, but it is from there that we are commissioned for the work that we will do in the millennium and in the eternal kingdom. There is also the promise to overcomers. Some of the overcomer passages refer to special blessings of rewards to those believers who overcome special trials and tests. While other overcomer passages seem to be a more general promise to all believers, there are some qualifications, and you'll find those in Revelation chapter two and Revelation chapter three. Each of the seven churches, there is an identification of the overcomer in it. The promise of commissions or of authority is important to us uh, as well. And it's in this area that we identify the aspect of the commissioning that occurs at the Bema. It's identified in our text in Luke chapter 19, verses 15 through 25. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, that he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much each man had gained by trade. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, here is the pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin, I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, and taketh up that which thou laidest not down, and reapest that which thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked uh, servant. Thou knowest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury? And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. So these parables lay forth the guidelines that instruct us that there is going to be a commissioning at our accounting, at the judgment seat of Christ, and that our commissioning is going to be based on our stewardship. The next great prophetic event is the rapture of the church. Christ will come in the air. He'll bring with him the spirits of those believers who have died during the church age, and their spirits will be united with their new resurrection bodies. Those believers who are still alive at that point will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye to be like Christ, and the resurrected and transformed believers will be caught up to meet christ in the air and so shall they ever be with the lord first thessalonians chapter 4 verses 14 through 18 document that at the rapture believers will be taken to the judgment seat of christ the bema seat the judgment seat or bema seat serves three purposes then the presentation of reward based on stewardship, the commissions for the kingdom, based upon stewardship and the purification of the bride of Christ. Having rewarded and examined as a basis of the commission, these appointments will be made. We're now equipped to look at the purification of the bride and the marriage of the lamb. We'll do that in the next lesson. But it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So then, Every one of us shall give an account of himself to God.